No, this is good. This is good. So urine test doesn't give you any objective values. It's just going to get you in trouble. Blood test gives you a chance of saying, I'm under this limit, which is, should not be intoxicating. Even All right. better, even better, your Delta 9 THC, you know, you check these metabolites, will be zero. In the old days, it used to be I went to Amsterdam for the weekend and then I tested positive. Hi, Rick Mikata coming to you, Risk Management Monthly, the November issue, November 22nd, Thanksgiving week. Rachel is on the line in uh, Phoenix, and we have a special guest, Frank Lovecchio, uh, who is with us also in Phoenix. And um, the three of us are going to talk about, about things related to medical toxicology primarily. Uh, Frank's specialty is medical toxicology, among other things. He's uh, involved with the... Um, the banner system in in which is a large system in uh, um, Phoenix. You're involved with the uh, county system there as well. He's involved with ASU where he is sitting in his office uh, now. And we, Frank and I, I've heard Frank's name for decades and decades and decades because of his involvement in emergency medicine. However, we've never met until I asked Frank, and I may have been on a cold call, if he'd participate at in our boot camp course that we do in Las Vegas. And we were looking for a medical toxicologist, um, which brings up a really kind of sad, sad note. You know, my good friend Jim Roberts um, died about maybe three months ago now, um, who was a medical toxicologist, among other things. His real claim to fame was this huge book he writes every four years called the um, uh, procedures in emergency medicine. So, Frank, welcome. Uh, Rachel, welcome. Thank we've you. got uh, a some interesting stuff to talk about today that we've never really talked about, and which definitely has medical legal aspects. Um, Rachel, I'd like to start off with um, uh, something that you brought up a couple of days ago, which Frank is right in tune about in regarding um, medical marijuana. Uh, not medical marijuana, physician smoking marijuana and the potential impl <laughs> implications with regards to getting a job. Sure. I'll open up with that. And then I'll also say the way that I met Frank was at ASAP. And I just think it's a funny story. So you and I were walking around ASAP and yes, we were. just kind of schmoozing and we got hungry and we spied these sandwiches, but they were on the other side of this glass cage and we needed to get to them. But the only way to get to them was we had to listen to a speaker. So we decided it was worth it. So we kind of crept in halfway through this talk to get these sandwiches. And we sat in the back by the sandwiches and we're eating them. And we, you know, begrudgingly started listening. And as we were listening, I leaned over to you and I was like, dang, this guy's really smart. Like, that's what I said to you. Like, who is this guy? He's really smart. And then I heard him say, you know, I work in Phoenix. And I was like, that's weird. There's this really smart guy in Phoenix. That I've never met him. I want to meet him. And so afterwards, since we missed the start of it, I didn't know who he was, but I knew this really smart guy who worked in Phoenix and I wanted to meet him. And so we walked up there and then one of my colleagues popped up on stage and clearly knew him and she introduced us and it was Frank. So, wow. Small Here world, yes. Small world. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much. Rachel, I heard a lot about you too, obviously, because of your dad. I kind of, I don't want to say I have your dad's job, but part of it. And uh, also my residents go up to your place. They go up to Mayo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so anyway, small world. So. Yeah. And Dr. Bicotta, I met a long time ago. Oh, no, no. He was a resident in New York City, Mount Sinai. We only had a couple of residencies in, in our whole, you know, now you could throw a rock and hit three residencies in Manhattan. But it was one of the first residencies there. 
And after an ASAP talk, I went up to him and uh, Dr. Hoffman and said, oh, hello, I'm a big fan, blah, blah, blah. So I was really, really excited to meet him. I used to have the cassettes, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> that was the that what? was very long time ago when when we were in cassettes uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, then it evolved to thumb drives and 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 other things. And finally, we decided no more. It's going to be on the all on the internet. That was um, a while ago. All right. So here's and, the dilemma. You know, I do want to acknowledge your dad because he was the dean at the um, the University of Arizona. Was was it ASU when the a ASU. Arizona ASU. State, yeah. Because he was the dean at Mayo, and and he kind of retired of sorts and came down to uh, Arizona where he took that job to get that medical school uh, started. ASU hasn't had a medical school, which is kind of strange because it's a 35,000-student university without a medical school, and yet University of Arizona, which is down the street in, in uh, Tucson, much smaller community for sure, had one and had one for a long, long, long time. So let's get started started uh, okay. with your story, okay? Okay. So here's kind of the conundrum or the issue that that I raised. Uh, we'll call it hypothetical, but so there was an issue I became aware of where a physician, uh, we can just simplify it actually, applied for a, we'll do a simplified version, applied for a job. And as part of that job, they did a drug screening test and the test came back positive for marijuana. There was no language in the contract for the job that this was going to be an issue because in this particular state, marijuana is legal. And so the applicant didn't really curb their marijuana use because marijuana is legal and test came back positive. Job offer was rescinded without any warning. And so physician had relied on this to move to that state, get a house, whatever, and job was rescinded without warning. Physician out of a job has relied on this. Do they have any recourse? Hmm. Well, they didn't get the job yet, right? So you can't kind of get an employment sort of uh, attorney. Um, the testing is really, really tricky. I mean, so what? He had a urine drug screen, I assume, positive for marijuana. Okay. It suggests that you could say with certainty, probably used in the last 72 hours. Okay. And, you know, it's a little trickier too. It might be a little bit longer if you take edibles, but if you smoke, you know, one time, um, you know, one puff or two, you'll likely be positive for about 72 hours. That's what we could say. We can't say that he's high. We can't say that he was high during the time. And most of the time, you know, you're high, maybe two, three hours or so, usually peak within an hour. But that's a difficulty, right? Hospitals don't want to get into the business of saying you're intoxicated, you're not intoxicated. They just want to say you're positive. End of conversation. You know. And his argument is, yeah, I used because it's legal and nobody ever told me I shouldn't. If I would have been told, I wouldn't have used. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. You know, I think we mentioned earlier too that we do it to our residents. Our residents go through the whole application, they get accepted and the match. Then they have to get fingerprinted and then do a drug screen. But they are kind of warned, at least, I don't know if it's in writing, but you, certainly everybody tells them, we check for everything, including marijuana. And if you're positive, you know, you can't get a job here, which is pretty traumatizing if they lost a the job. Mm -hmm. So the washout period is something like um, three or four days. And so it'd be best if you don't uh, smoke for a week. Well, uh, would that be a safe thing to say? 
Uh, yes, it would be. You know, you could you see studies or you see reports where people are positive for like 28 days. You know, that is the rare, rare exception. That's a very, very heavy Rastafarian type who smokes <laughs> multiple uh, marijuana cigarettes, multiple joints per day. Um, if you have a lot of fat on you and you smoke every day, you could be positive for up to two weeks or so. So you got to be careful. But if you're just a casual user, um, hypothetically, people have said to me, I'm getting a drug test on Monday morning or Monday at noon, and I use Thursday night. Will I be positive? And I say no. And they say, well, what should I do? I say, just to be cautious, you should drink lots of fluids. They go, well, I looked down on Amazon. This is a great kit to help me beat it, to help me beat the test. All of those tests tell you, take this one pill, it might be vitamin C or placebo, and drink four gallons of water. Or, <laughs> you know, it'll have caffeine in it, so it's like a diuretic or very, very low dose like Lasix or something like that. So, you know, you don't want to be too dilute. You don't want to be too dilute, especially the day of, because then they'll reject your test. But uh, lots of fluids beforehand. I'm not telling you how to beat drug tests, but hypothetically, if you were asking me, that's what I would tell you. So this particular physician, you know, in his, the language for this job, there was no language about marijuana specifically, you know, that was testing for illegal drugs. Mm. So I think it was outdated language because it was presumably written at a time when marijuana was widely illegal and now it's not. And so, you know, he had relied on the language to quit his old job, move across the country, put an offer on a house, you know, leave his old apartment and, you know, had done all of these steps, presuming that he had this job and then it was he lost it. And so, you know, I, it, it makes you wonder legally if there's, you know, some legal responsibility from this new employer for not giving him a heads up that actually we are going to punish you for using a legal substance, you know, because how is it different from alcohol in that sense? And that when you use it, you're only intoxicated for a couple of hours, but you know, we've, we've made a moral or ethical decision that we don't like it. Mm -hmm. And, and so we are going to then take away your job for using it. It's, it's hard for me to distinguish those two. And so if you're not giving him a heads up that, that job could be lost. I don't know. It's just, it's very, I think the argument is it's federally illegal, right, Rachel? So if it's federally illegal, then people argue that, of course I'm with you. Look, I, I don't think it should be illegal. He shouldn't lo lose his job for that. But the tests right now, you can't differentiate whether he smoked one minute ago or, you know, 10 minutes ago or mm -hmm. three days ago. So they're just like, Hey, we don't want to get into that business. Screw it. We're just going to say you're positive and you're perhaps intoxicated right now. And we're going to say, you know, no go. Um, you know, they do check for alcohol in the urine drug screen typically. And if mm -hmm. I have a drink 12 hours later, it'll be negative on the urine drug screen for the spot one. They could do these mm -hmm. other tests that are more extensive, you know, that sort of stuff. I, I know what you're saying, and I, I sympathize with them. Um, I don't know. Any good but they're not, Yeah, but they're not administering the tests before they show up to work. So it's kind oh. of, yeah. Anyway, just, uh, I think that, you know, there, sh there has to probably be some requirement by these employers that the language is updated to make it very clear mm -hmm. on if they have zero tolerance for marijuana or not. So that people that are in these states where it's legal understand 
what their obligation is to their employer and don't get themselves in that situation. They check for opiates, right? So all of a sudden they check for opiates and your opiate screen is positive. And then you show them a prescription for Oxycontin for your chronic back pain that you take, mm-hmm. you know, two or three times a day. They would probably let you work. You know, that's the irony, right? Yeah. 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 I, it, it seems that there were damages, but there are not probably a, uh, enough damages so that um, it's worth pursuing uh, a lawyer and all that other stuff. But substantial costs were incurred in this. Plus, I'm sure there was a lot of emotional distress and loss of consortium um, during this, which is probably worth a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, that's a big uh, dice to roll to uh, to go after a big employer, you know, unlikely that you're going to win that one and oh, yeah. get I, a job I, later. Right. I, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're compounding your problem. It's yeah. like best to just kind of say, OK, 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 rather than, you know, and this doctor then sued uh, the hospital and now, and he's going to lose or she's going to lose. Right. Uh, but but oh, I think bottom, bottom line for physicians have to understand that, you know, just because it's legal in a state doesn't mean you have the right to use. But I agree. Uh, you, you need to play the game fairly and tell the people that that's the rules you're going to play by. Now, what about moving on from that? So let's say you don't have a drug test pending. Let's say you're just a physician that is employed and you don't have a shift coming up for a few days and you're just at a party. Weed is legal. Weed is not legal. But you're at a party with a bunch of weed. Let's just say, let's start with weed is legal in your state. And you use it, right? So most states you're not going to get arrested in, right? Why would you? But does your contract say you're not allowed to use it? And if your contract says you're not allowed to use it, then I think you shouldn't use it. But um, if you go back to work a couple of days later and you're positive, I think you're in trouble, unfortunately, because it follows like the federal standard. You know, I'm not for this. Don't misinterpret me. You know, if, if you wanted to say to me, is there a test we can do for alcohol? First, you know, if you're impaired, you're, you know, 0.08 is impaired in most states, right? We call it 80 milligrams per deciliter for alcohol or 0.08, you know, is what the cops say. If I smoke marijuana right now, you could check Delta 9 THC. And that usually peaks really, really quickly. And usually your level is under two nanograms per ml four to six hours afterwards. So if it happened to me, God forbid, I would say, I'm not taking, I'm not taking the urine test. I'll do a blood test. Or, you know, I want this to correlate with it. And, you know, your hope is that it'll be under two nanograms per ml. So you can put it behind you. You can say, look, I did this more than six hours ago. And here I am at work. You know, of course I'm sober now, you know. That's me giving legal advice, which I shouldn't do, right? I mean, I think it bows me. No, this is good. This is good. So <laughs> urine test is non, doesn't give you any objective values. It's just going to get you in trouble. Blood test gives you a chance of saying, I'm under this limit, which is should not be intoxicating. Mm-hmm. Okay. Even All better, right. even better, your Delta 9 THC, you know, you check for these metabolites, will be mm-hmm. zero. Then you could say, yeah. I'm positive these non-intoxicating metabolites, but I didn't, I did it way over six hours ago. All so right. what? You know, in the old days it used to be, I went to Amsterdam for the weekend and then I tested positive, you know, now it's wherever, you know, most yeah. the tide is turning. I always thought that this administration was going to make it federally legal and it was going to be a lot easier. 
But what we tell people is, well, you can't get a DA license now because you tested positive. And if you can't get a DA license, then you can't really practice at our institution, which really, for lack of a better word, sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So we don't have any solutions except don't know the rules. Don't don't smoke uh, before you're tested. Are you seeing contracts that have express language about marijuana use in them? Um, ours, I'm told that ours has it because some of my colleagues who are going to, you know, obviously, you know, Phoenix is like a big shuffleboard with people moving all around. They said, hey, we're going to come yeah. work for you. And then they told me about it. And they said, okay. hey, I've used marijuana. And I did tell them to do that. I said, you know, that's your decision, et cetera. But you have to wash out, wait for at least three days. He says, well, I use every day. I said, all right, try to extend five days, drink lots of fluids, et cetera. And if you drink too much fluids, your urine is going to be very dilute, and then you're going to be considered, quote, positive. So people are usually told, drink lots of fluids, you know, maybe with caffeine, it'll cause this diuretic effect. And then maybe the day of the test, kind of just hydrate with like Gatorade, which will, you know, kind of bring your specific gravity up again. Okay. Mm. Maybe not where we wanted to go with this talk, but- um, I'll, I'll also tell you some cool ones that I've seen, you know, um, I do, one of my favorite parts of my job is doing legal stuff. And I do, I love it. Cause you learn something new every time. And so you have a guy, you know, who maybe works for, we'll say like a trucking company or something like that. And he tests positive for marijuana. And he says, Hey, this is not on me. I went into a shop and it said CBD. And I've been applying CBD to my joints forever. Uh, true story it's almost impossible to get CBD, non-pharmaceutical. Like if you just go buy it at one of these million shops that have signs up that does not have THC in it. So another rule is, you know, don't use CBD, you know, don't use hemp oil, don't use CBD because that will show up positive unless you buy from, you know, Merck or Pfizer that tells you it's hundred percent CBD. It's going to show up as a small trace of THC. Huh. Really good advice. Yeah. So uh, are there any more issues related to uh, marijuana that may have some um, medical legal consequences that um, that we ought to know about? Um, what, do you, what do you think, Rachel? Do you think it's like worth talking about some of the medical stuff, like the hyperemesis syndrome that we see? You know, when people use marijuana in the past, I never used to see this hyperemesis stuff. And now it just seems, I don't know if it's more potent and that's why, but we just see people have this rip-roaring, vomiting, et cetera. And it's hard to convince people that it's related to their marijuana because this hyperemesis syndrome usually happens, you know, at least a month after. They might've been using it for, you know, months to years. And I don't know the right way to treat it. You know, I know we, there's case series where they do all of these weird things you know, sometimes even, you know, apply stuff to their belly, you know, um, they, they uh, give them antipsychotics sometimes and they stop vomiting. But it's one of those things, maybe working at a county hospital where I could spot across the room, you know, you hear that retching, like, you know, the devil has got them. And it's like, they're like, screaming mm. and vomiting and just like, okay, that's got to be, you know, hyperemesis syndrome induced by marijuana. But I don't know if you got an approach to it. Do you uh, have a good approach or a good feel of how to treat it? Uh, I mean, we see a lot of it. I, I don't know if we see it, the, the folks frequently enough, you know, for this chronic problem enough to know how successfully we're managing it. We do, we do a lot of repair at all. 
mm-hmm. in our shop, which tends to work acutely more successfully than most other things that we use. So that's probably my personal go-to, but yeah, I don't know. Do you have a, a personal no. preference? You know, when I was a director of the poison center here, we used to tell people to take a shower and I thought that was ridiculous. Oh yeah. I mean, hot packs. Crazy. And such. Yeah. yeah. There's something about the vasodilatation and maybe it's a reparatol causing a little bit of vasodilatation because of the alpha effect or Haldol, et cetera, causing that. So I don't quite understand it, but I usually think, by, oh, go ahead. No, no. I think the teaching point is, you know, you got to tell people not to use it anymore, unfortunately, which really bums them out. And yeah. And, you know, our GI folks, they usually come in wanting to see GI. That's why they've made it up to, you know, North Phoenix, mm-hmm. Scottsdale, because they're seeking a GI specialist appointment. And our GI folks won't see them unless they're, they're three months of cessation because, wow. you know, and so that's what we're preaching to them. Like, unless you've been off of it for three full months, mm-hmm. you will not be seen by a specialist. And that's essentially a, a, a stop for them. A full stop. And then by that point, they don't need them, which is essentially why GI draws the line at three months for them. And by the time they've seen us, they, you know, one of the ways that we kind of confirm what's going on is they tell us, yeah, our hot water's out in our house because they've just been living in the shower that long. Uh, good stuff. Yeah. Or in Phoenix, you can just go outside in the summer, just lay them <laughs> It's probably the same effect. Yeah. Um, should we move on to another? Um, uh, issue that may have some um, medical legal uh, um, applicability. You want to do um, opioids? Um, sure, sure. I think we should talk a little bit about it. And I think the opiate of the day is fentanyl, right? Um, I think fentanyl is, you know, of all the drugs of abuse and, you know, whether intentional or non-intentional overdose in the U.S., opiates is the number one killer. Um, and of the opiates, you know, fentanyl is the number one killer in that opiate group. So um, I used to think, you know, that the pandemic would eliminate all people overdosing, et cetera, you know, because most drugs are smuggled over across the border. And actually we've seen a surge of deaths and we've seen a surge of opiate use. Uh, so it's kind of had the, the opposite effect. But I, I think the medical legal aspects of fentanyl use is what to do with the patients after they get Narcan. And I don't know about where you guys live, but uh, many times people are found down, you know, the classic opiate triage, you know, decreased respirations, pinpoint pupils, altered mental status. Uh, The most important one, which we don't always mention is response to Narcan, you know, because other things can give you that scenario and not response to Narcan, but they respond to Narcan, they wake up a little bit. And, you know, how long do you keep them around? You know, and I think it's really a a tough question. When it first came out, we used to keep people around for a day. Uh, That's what we used to recommend as a poison center. Then it evolved into 12 hours. Now it's evolved into six hours, see how they're doing unless they they look great. Um, Because the fentanyl pill, no one one takes a fentanyl pill by mouth. And, you know, they have a 30 on them, you know, M30s. And the the reason why they have an M30 on it, they're supposed to mimic Oxycontin 30 milligrams. And to mimic that, you need to put lots and lots of fentanyl on it. Sometimes, you know, 3,000 uh, micrograms. So think about it. If you get have somebody with rip-roaring abdominal pain or a fracture, you might give them uh, 1,000 mics, 
you know, this is like many, many fold higher than that. And the reason why they do that is because it's not bioavailable really that well if you take it orally. So it's meant to be taken by mouth. The drug dealer should tell people that a little bit better. You shouldn't be smoking this. You shouldn't be shooting it up. And when they shoot it up, think about it. You know, it's not like you give them 100 mics by accident. The patient's altered in your emergency department. They're taking 3,000 or 5,000 or so. And sometimes they're putting more than one tablet in. And it's unfortunate, but you can crush those pills and mix it with a little bit of saline is preferred as opposed to water. And you'll get the effect of fentanyl, you know, similar to heroin instantaneously. You know, by the time you finish pushing the needle in, you'll have fentanyl in your brain. And that's what most addicts want. You know, addicts are like the emergency physicians of the world. You know, immediate gratification is too late. We want it instantly. We want to, you know, feel good right away. Um, and I don't know how long to watch them. My colleagues push for shorter and shorter. I push for a little bit longer. I always put a script of Narcan in their hands, whether they fill it or not. You know, I don't know. I always try to suggest that they get detox. And if they're in withdrawal, you know, I think the big push is to push uh, buprenorphine or Suboxone. So, sorry, a lot of words there. Sorry. With the fentanyl, why isn't it, is it different than the fentanyl we have that wears off within an hour or two? Yeah, I think the the short answer is yes. The longer answer is why. And, And it's like, if you had a patient and you gave them 50 of fentanyl and they were altered, and then you shook them 15 minutes later and they were awake, you'd say, okay, you can go home, you know, right? But what if I told you instead of 50, you gave them 5,000 and they were altered? You'd say, okay, that's going to last a little bit longer. You yeah. know, it's kind of a dose response thing. Yeah. And it's not uncommon for these people who have habits of 10 of those tablets a day. You know, they're very, very cheap. And then I don't want to say frustrates me, but one of the things that's tough is you know, when you say, what's the half-life of Narcan? I know I'm going to get yelled at and get some hate mail for this. The half-life of Narcan is variable. It's like, say, 30 minutes to an hour, give or take. That's the study with 0.04, uh, you know, milligrams. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't it going to last longer if you give two milligrams? Is it going to last longer when you give 10 milligrams? And some of our patients get two in the arm, two in this arm, two nasally, and then they finally get an IV and they'll give another two. Well, that's kind of a different patient. Can you still say the half-life is 30 minutes? I don't know. Studies suggest no, right? It kind of says higher dose, it lasts a little bit longer. And that's why I try to keep them longer. So if I was king for a day, I would recommend that you give them the smallest amount of Narcan possible just to wake up a little bit, you know, you know, breathe a little bit and then keep them till five half-lives of that Narcan is gone. Okay. And you got to add a little time if it's more than, you know, 0.04 or 0.08. Yeah. What, so we have a boot camp that we run for the, the fourth year med students where we have a patient that we kind of accidentally wake up to abruptly with Narcan. That's an overdose patient. We wake them up to abruptly and then they, they want to leave. And when mm-hmm. we do this, the med students are, you know, really uncomfortable with the patient leaving. We basically, it's a simulation. So we have the, the patient, uh, walks out, you know, and the, the the students are all like really freaked out because they recognize this is a really high risk patient. And they want to stop them, but obviously they're not going to like tackle this, the, the simulation patient. Um, and, and I talked to him about, and what I end up saying to them is, you know, this is totally realistic. And also this is kind of what you have to do because in this scenario, yes, it's a high risk patient, but ultimately now you've created this patient that 
has capacity because you've you've woken them up to the point that they are no longer sedated or impaired and they they do have decision making capacity and you can't stop them now mm-hmm. um and so i you know encourage them we kind of review the the elements of decision making capacity and i encourage the patients or the students to kind of go through that to the best of their ability with this agitated patient who's now wanting to leave. And if they, they happen to do that, the, the patient will kind of cooperate with them, but ultimately leave. And I think that's pretty realistic with these patients, you know, if they're cooperative to the point that they answer those questions, they do have capacity and they're just going to go. And I think when you wake them up to that point, that's what these patients are going to do, right? Because now they're withdrawing and they want to go. And so I, you know, I agree with you, if you can kind of control the situation in, you know, with modest amounts of Narcan to the point that they're breathing, but not uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. that's ideal. Keep them safe, but not agitated. That would be great. But if you get them to that point where they're uncomfortable, they're going to walk out. And medically, a lot of the times they're young, healthy people, but there's not enough else going on. And, and then they do want to go home and there's, there's really nothing you can do to stop them legally. Um, and so you create a, a, a situation where you're sending a patient out to probably do more harm to themselves. And that's really unfortunate, but also realistic. You have a checklist, like if someone's going to go AMA, like let's say they're a little drunk or a little inebriated or a little intoxicated. And you say, if they can do these things for me, then I think that's, they're not intoxicated or inebriated or just safe to sign an AMA for capacity. Yeah. Yeah, I, so I do, I, there's like four elements of capacity, you know, do they understand their care? Do they appreciate the risks? Are they willing to, are they able to communicate their reasoning? Yeah, I have it. And I kind of pull it up almost every time I go through it because it's not very intuitive to me. And I I want to be really careful that I'm like, that I am documenting it every single time. And I, I put it in my documentation every single time. And I, I give lectures on this and I still, to this day, like, it's so non-intuitive that I pull it up. I Google it every single time, like four elements of capacity. And I'm like on my phone, like, yep, yep. Okay. And I, I, I still do it like that for these patients because, um, because they're all, they're, they're so high risk and I want to make sure that I've done it. Um, so I do it for these patients. I'll do it for the drug patients and, you know, those rare patients in between where they're doing, they're making terrible decisions, but I can't stop them. So you do the same for alcohol, et cetera. It doesn't really matter what's yeah. impairing you. Right. I mean, cause that's the fear, right? They kind of go out and do something stupid, do drugs again, or get hit by a car. And then you're, yep. you're kind of on the hook. Yep. Um, and there's just so many times where, you know, that's all you you have to do and like elderly patients, for example, that are just, they make up, they make terrible decisions a lot. And really you just have to demonstrate that you, you know, they might just have a UTI and they're refusing admission and like, they're kind of on the fence of being weak or something. And you're like, gosh, there's a really good chance they're going to fall and break their hip. But I think they have capacity. They think they have capacity, but if you're documenting, you know, that you at least tried and you took the steps, you took the time and you document it, I think that's very protective, you know, in all of those scenarios. So I, you know, chart that and it really doesn't take that much time, but it's, it's very rarely charted. Do you like ask the nurses, like what they're charting? I've learned that the hard way, you know, and by doing some of these legal cases, 
I've always asked the nurses, it's like, okay, what are you going to write about this? You know, I don't try to influence them, but I say, I'm going to write that I heard, I usually have a witness. Okay. Yes. And and try to say, okay, we're on the same page here. You know, you understand what's going on. You could repeat to me, like you could die and something bad could happen, et cetera. Well, for conversations like that, I would have the nurse in the room with me so that it's, you know, I don't have to ask after the fact, like, what did you write? It's just like, we're, we're all in the same room. Right. That's what I mean. Yeah. I'm in the same room. So you can make sure you're writing the same stuff. Do you ever put them in an Uber? You let them do whatever they want. Can they walk out of your emergency department? If they're a little. Like drunk people. Yeah. They're drunk, but we almost, we almost always are getting them a ride somewhere safe, especially because we're pretty isolated. You know, if you're walking out, you're in the desert, you know, (laughs) there's nothing around us. Yeah, unfortunately, we're by a train, by traffic, and it's just very worrisome. Yeah, no, we we definitely pay to get them to a destination. Mm -hmm. But we also, you know, that's easy for me to say because we're have more resources than I think a lot of emergency departments. Yeah, I think it's easy to uh, ask um, when this person gets injured and they left the emergency department and somebody needs to pay, you know, did they really, do they really have capacity? And so your checklist would be really helpful. But then the other issue is, have you really advised them of the risk of leaving? Uh, so that in fact, that they really understand the, the, the potentially worst things that can happen to them, because I think if they have capacity, and you say, listen, you know, there's the chance that you're leaving with this chest pain that uh, you could have an arrhythmia and drop dead. Uh, I think that that's important that they n- know the potential consequences because they might say, well, I didn't know I could drop dead. You know, I just thought I had a heart attack and they don't know necessarily connect the dots about um, the potential consequences of um, of leaving. So I, th- I do think there's clearly a risk. Because uh, you hear of these cases where people leave and then, and the other thing that relates to that is when they're leaving uh, and they've just basically eloped Mm -hmm. and kind of what would be a reasonable thing to do for somebody who has eloped, who you're concerned about with regards to um, mental capacity. And I think that, you know, people are going to say, well, what did you do? I mean, so we called the hospital security. Okay. We looked around the, the grounds. Well, did you call the, the police department to advise that there's a patient out there who uh, is in danger, potentially in danger. And I think that you have to go through the whole process because you're going to say, well, what would a reasonable person have done in this case? You were very concerned about this patient and yet you didn't really kind of follow through to what others would think to be a reasonable thing to do. Do you think it's reasonable to call the police on these cases, like the local police and say, Hey, we got a patient that kind of upstanding. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, they, they can l- at least help you try to f- um, find them. They have more ma- manpower th- than you do. They could cruise the streets around there so that this r- reasonable things are done because we've all heard of these cases where people go out and get hit by a bus or something like, you know, something bad happens to them very um, close to when they left the hospital. And it's going to like... Um, are you culpable? And I think you have to be really careful when these things happen. And I agree fully that there ought to be members of the uh, nursing staff there. I think there ought to be members of the family there. 
um, so that everybody's in agreement that Frank left and he knew what the potential consequences were. I don't, I don't, I don't, why, I don't know why I said Frank, but uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I would never it, sign out against you, Rick. <laughs> so, um, any other issues with regards to opiates? Because I, I personally would like to talk a little bit about the uh, buprenorphine uh, business here, because I kind of think that virtually all emergency departments with their, you know, of any size should really have a buprenorphine program in conjunction with members of the medical staff who are willing to see patients who uh, have this problem. And I think there are always members of the medical staff who are willing to help these people uh, invariably have some form of insurance uh, medicated at, at, at the worst. And I think that, um, I think that it's kind of one of those things where the the question is, why didn't you have a program? I mean, all it requires is that the ER folks do this and that, and that certain primary care doctors agree to see them within a short time of their emergency department visit. And is that so difficult to uh, achieve? Um, so it's tricky, I think that know, that's reasonable. Yeah, I agree. But well, I don't know why a lot of emergency visits are very, very reluctant to do that. They don't feel comfortable. You know, it's just, I think maybe it's an education education gap. You know, if you give somebody Suboxone, if I, I got you out of withdrawal and I, it required six milligrams Suboxone and it's the middle of the day, I'm so confident that I could give you another six milligrams in your hand and say, tonight when you start to feel withdrawal again, take this. And then tomorrow morning, you can see, you know, one of our outpatient doctors, you know, that's an ideal world. But of course, you know that they're going to, the potential that they walk outside and take all six milligrams at once. And still, nothing's going to happen. When I say nothing, almost nothing is going to happen because they reached kind of this ceiling effect. I mean, it's magical. When this drug first came out, I said, this is not going to, you know, bear the test of time. It's just too good to be true. Where if you take six milligrams and that gets you out of withdrawal and that, that's perfect, if you take another six, it doesn't make you higher, you know? I mean, you do get intoxicated if you just take the drug a little bit. Obviously, it's a pain reliever. And when we mix it with Suboxone, it's buprenorphine and an antagonist. So if you inject it somehow, it would cause you to go into the Q withdrawal. You know, the joke is you'd only ever do that once because it'd be the worst withdrawal of your life. You know, so I think we should. Um, and I think the big barrier is maybe some knowledge of this whole, you know, drug and a better understanding of it. Um, they don't rely on these patients. They feel uncomfortable with them. A lot of it gets diverted. If you write it to a pharmacy, sometimes they sell it on the street. You know. Well, even if they do sell it, it's good for them to sell it on the street because it'll do the same thing for their uh, colleague, um, colleague addicts. I mean, I've heard people say, well, they're going to sell it. And, and I've heard that it's like, well, so what? You know, it's it maybe doing some good right. if, they, if they do that because it will it will not exceed a certain um, level of, of, of brain um, um, capacity uh, involvement. So I, th I think that this is an evolution of emergency medicine. I mean, Suboxone and buprenorphine were really not something that we were familiar with like 10 years ago, but it is now. And I think that it's kind of like, we need to evolve with the, with the with the science, and I think that these folks are in uh, are in serious trouble. And if we can help them, 
by seeing them in emergency department, acknowledging that they, you know, they had a a a near life threatening or uh, um, ending. Ex- maybe maybe that'll give them the the heebie-jeebies a little bit about continuing. Maybe not though. And if you can say, okay, well, we have this other other treatment that was not available in the past. Um, I think it. I don't think it's hard to do this. Um, and I think that it, the initiation has to come from emergency visits. It's not going to come from anybody else in the hospital. It needs to be an emergency uh, medicine initiated uh, endeavor. And I think that um, Rachel, are you familiar with hospitals doing this? Uh, Yeah, I think one criticism I've heard that I don't know if I've heard a good answer for is the concern that if this becomes initiated in the emergency department and we don't have a place for people to have this continued is that people are going to continue to return to the emergency department for their, you know, refills of the prescriptions. And then that's going to be the solution and that we're already kind of becoming primary care for everybody else. And so what's the answer for that? Well, I, I, I would ask, um, would the, I don't think you can really give this stuff out without some reasonable follow-up expected. I mean, it's kind of like you're only kind of, um, you're, you, we're not necessarily able to prescribe, uh, prescribe it unless you've got an X waiver. They've made getting X waiver a pain in the butt. Um, I think ASAP is really trying to, I mean, it's not hard to it's not hard to prescribe this now. They've kind of relaxed those. We put, we can prescribe for additional days now, mm-hmm. so they made it easier for us to prescribe. And there really isn't like there aren't a ton of places that are gonna pick up these patients, so it's easier for us. But where are these patients gonna go now? You know, Rachel, in our city, there's you know there's dozens there's a the group that gets Medicare funding and government funding. And they, they guarantee from the, you know, I guess CEO, chief medical officer's mouth, that they will see anybody that walks in that day. So we usually try to tell them to go, you know, in the morning, you know, uh, the, the next morning. There are a lot of places. And, and I don't know, Arizona's maybe not as progressive as some other states. I imagine other states have this too, where you can kind of go and get, not necessarily Suboxone. Sometimes they put them on methadone, which is a whole other topic. But um, they usually can get uh, resources. I mean, there's a lot of federal money that's gone. Yeah, I was going to mention that too. There is uh, there is a, a lot of money. And so it's just a matter of, I think, or not that it's that all that easy, but connecting these, these, uh, these resources so that, in fact, you now have a program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, and, and not so much locally, but just going to some of these talks at ASAP, that was some of the concern that folks were raising in the audiences. If we do this, we don't want these patients coming back, you know? You know, um, I think you were talking earlier about giving somebody Narcan and they start to go into withdrawal. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the, the, like, if you give buprenorphine and they're not in withdrawal, you can kind of precipitate withdrawal. So they wouldn't like that. Mm-hmm. But there's like kind of easy protocols, I think, that you can follow where you just kind of do a withdrawal scale. And mm-hmm. if they're greater than this number, you can do it. Right. And sometimes you got to wait or tell them to come back the next morning or something like yeah. that. Maybe not in your ED. But I always say this to people, like when they give too much Narcan, the guy's up and withdrawing and then he wants to leave against medical advice. And then the guy's a jerk because he wants to leave against medical advice. I usually say to them, hey, did you get COVID or the flu this year? How'd you feel? And they're like, you know, they usually say, I felt like crap. 
and they give all of these things. I go, picture your worst day of COVID. And all you had to do is walk, you know, a hundred yards from our hospital and take one pill and all of that would go away. You would do it, of course, right? You would do anything to kind of relieve all of those bad, bad uh, symptoms. Yeah. You know, that's why I think it really comes to play. I mean, I know nobody dies of opioid withdrawal. You know, that's a general kind of consensus that you, you don't die from the withdrawal, but you're going to feel like you're going to die. And there's an easy treatment where they could just go back on the opiate, which we don't want. We want to put them on something else that's a little bit safer. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, when you do the drug screen on, on those folks, I think we, we didn't really, you know, about the opiate thing. A, a lot of hospitals don't have fentanyl in their urine drug screen. Okay. And they might get a false sense of security and, you know, that they didn't use opiates or whatever. And then the other thing is that sometimes they use methadone. Okay. And I always try to be very, very careful with methadone because it lasts so long. So if I overdosed on methadone, somebody gave me methadone and you did a urine drug screen that was positive for methadone, you're, you're obliged to watch them even longer because it kind of could come back, you know, the respiratory depression, stuff like that. But I say, be careful. I don't know if you check urine drug screens on all these guys or just kind of follow clinically. You know, do you guys do that? Um, it's variable. We don't have a standardized practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, you know, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. That's okay. You know, uh, speaking of uh, measuring, can I go just go back to the um, alcohol business? Because sure. I think one of the things that you wanted to talk about, and I, and I agree, is what's the utility of doing a blood alcohol in a patient who's clinically intoxicated? Um, you want to? Would you go through a little bit of that? You want to go first, Rachel? It's kind of a. Uh, this is so controversial, but. Do you want uh, what you do? All right, sometimes? sure. I'll do mine, and then you can do the expert critique. No, not at all. I could. <laughs> I don't. You're the expert. You. I no. think it's a, a lot of it is a legal question, right? Uh. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. So right. let's see. Um. I'm trying to decide. That was a yes or no question. You know, wasn't No, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here. Um, I sure don't get blood alcohol levels in most of my patients. Um, yeah. A, let's see. I think you're that if a patient, you're, you're I think if a patient is really altered, mm -hmm. you know, and it's unclear that it's all alcohol that there is a role for blood alcohol testing um, in like severely altered patients. Okay. I often get it in those patients. If a patient is just um, slightly, slightly intoxicated and, you know, they're brought in for something else and you're just expecting them to kind of clear up or you don't, you're not really concerned about their level of intoxication. I generally don't get blood alcohol levels in those patients. I'm really not worried about their intoxication. Um, and then there's some patients that are in between where I'm kind of expecting them to clear. And if they do clear up as anticipated, then I don't get alcohol levels in them. If I'm expecting them to clear and then they start getting more confused for some reason and, you know, change in a way I'm not anticipating, then I may get a level in them because they're not clinically behaving in the way I was anticipating. So. That's kind of how I play that. So if they, if it's a guy or woman who, you know, family members say they were drinking alcohol, that's all. And they look intoxicated mm -hmm. and they're a little altered. 
you know, maybe it sounds like you wouldn't. There's no signs of trauma, right? Right. And if they brought me, if they came in for that, mm-hmm. I'm not even sure why they're there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, if they think like, so let's say they came in, they're drinking alcohol and they came in because they cut their hand mm-hmm. and I deal with their hand cut and then I don't care about the alcohol intoxication. Right. If they brought them in because they're drinking alcohol and they look like they're drinking alcohol and their family members worried because they're a little drunk. Then mm-hmm. I just let them sleep for a little bit until they look a little more sober, like I'd expect. Yes. And then I don't care what their alcohol level is. I would not check it. Okay. And then uh, if there are signs of trauma, maybe mm-hmm. you check or no, they bang their head. They're a little altered. Uh, no, not necessarily. I mean, if they are acting like I would expect otherwise, mm-hmm. no. If they bang their head and they're drunk, I'd probably I'd scan their head. Yeah, scan their head. And then some people because, say you scan their head, you scan their neck. I don't know. It gets a little, gets so. Yeah, I would follow the imaging rules for that. Yeah. Um, I'm a big proponent of ASAP's imaging rules. Like, yeah. I, I didn't know that there were imaging rules. ASAP has what they, they've basically taken like Canadian, uh, the Canadian head CT and C-spine and Nexus and combined them all into uh, level A and level B imaging recommendations. And they're nice because they've, they've taken all those and put them together. And the level A are ones where if they've had loss of consciousness or amnesia and the level B is without loss of consciousness or amnesia. So they have them for both sets of patients. And that's actually what CMS looks at. Um, for their recommendations that are tied to payment rules. So it's nice because they're, they, they've taken kind of all the, um, the evidence based guidelines and put them together. Man, I was totally not aware of that at all. And I wonder how many of our colleagues are aware, especially when you get into the situation where you uh, don't follow them and they say, well, are you a member of ASAP? Do you acknowledge that this, a, this is a, highly regarded professional organization and are you uh are you aware of the um the guidelines that they have for the treatment and um you say uh, yes i am a member and i guess i know i'm not and um i think that that's a place where guidelines can get potentially get you in trouble especially if they're not written carefully where they the where in fact they become rules you know Canadians are really good on, you know, the ACA rules, the head rules. They like the word rules, which is not generally what you think of Canadians. Canadians are nice people. They're very agreeable people. They don't mandate anything up there. And well, those ones are nice, guidelines. but, you know, those ones were only like validated with patients that lost consciousness or were amnestic to the event. And that's not the majority of patients. So they actually don't apply to most patients that you're looking at, which is what you know, when, when people are applying them like residents and stuff, they're pulling up Canadian head CT and they actually is, are, are not relevant to the patient sitting in front of you. So it's actually ASAP level B recommendations that they should be looking at. Wow. That's wow. You know, there was a talk at ASAP a couple of years ago. It was called, I'm going to, I'm paraphrasing, of course. It said, are you reading the guidelines? Uh, and it said, comma, lawyers are, you know, and it's kind of like the first thing they Google when there's like a legal case that pops up and say, hey, do you follow these guidelines? Do you trust them, et cetera? You know? Yeah. You know, uh, Yeah. I think um, there's like some cool studies where they like kind of asked physicians, you know, is this patient uh, intoxicated? 
And they were pretty good, like in the setting of blunt trauma, but they were, it was pretty inaccurate with the fact of them trying to identify sober patients. They, they considered sober to be under 80 milligrams per deciliter or, you know, 0.08, which is what the cops do. And they were only right like about a third of the time, 32% of the time to say if they're quote sober, you know, I think that's kind of interesting. Now, granted it was a setting of blunt trauma, but they said it wasn't, there wasn't head injury, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I, I don't know, you know, I, I could argue both ways. Sometimes I like when my residents say they're going to get an alcohol level. Cause I could say, well, what if you don't? And if they don't get an alcohol level, I say, Hey, what are your considerations for getting it? I think there's a, uh, pros and cons and great variability. Um, one of the big arguments against it is all of a sudden his alcohol level is 400 or 0.4. Then you're kind of bound to watch him for how long till he becomes quote legally, you know, sober or till the level zero. Because I well, think actually um, that's what I, one of the things I, I think, I think, you know, Rachel touched on the use of blood alcohols, in the clinical setting, when you're trying to make a decision whether this person is solely intoxicated or there, there is some other uh, thing going on as well. But the other part of this relates to um, when you may be able to discharge a patient. And I've really had strong views that one of the reasons not to get a blood alcohol is because we we know of the straight line metabolism of this stuff so you that you more or less will know what the blood alcohol is when they leave the emergency department and and then they go out and then they get hit by a bus and their blood alcohol was x and people could say well you know they were still under the influence of this drug and i think that when you talk about 0.08 i think it's really related to the ability to drive a car Mm-hmm. It's very specifically limited to uh, the ability to drive a car, but there are people who um, have 0.08 who are more than have total capacity. I mean, they they are uh, clinically um, pretty much okay, even though the 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 number is 0.08. Uh, so I think that they had to draw a line someplace, and you know they they've lowered the line. Um, in most states, a point oh eight, but it used to be higher, and so it's kind of like, in some ways, it's kind of arbitrary. But in our business, letting people go who are intoxicated, I think having done a blood alcohol just because they're intoxicated is kind of like I don't think it's a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. I think you should do it when only in the setting where it's clinically necessary, because you're concerned of the uh, potential, the reasonable potential of something else. Uh, being there because I want to let people go who are intoxicated, who who were intoxicated because I've made a clinical assessment that they are uh, okay to go. Their speech is clear and you've written a paragraph or a part of a paragraph that makes it clear that you believe that they are, uh, they have the capacity to leave and that they are not, not, you know, a toxic when they walk and those kinds of things. So you, you paint a picture of somebody who is okay to go or get picked up by the brother and taken home, uh, that, those kinds of things. So in that case, if you got an alcohol level and you said, you know, clinically they're not intoxicated, they're okay to leave, et cetera, but technically their level was still high. We'll just say it was 120 or 0.12 and they left and something happened. The alcohol level kind of hurt you in that case if something bad happened to them. Well, I think it'll be used against you, clearly. Yeah. If something did happen and maybe you were wrong, 
you know, yeah. in your terms of your uh, assessment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it probably puts you in a bit of a box. Uh, and so I certainly would not do it routinely and and intoxicated patients. And I don't think anybody really does it routinely any any anymore because I think that they know the potential risk. I hope they know the potential risks. And, and, you know, to tell you the truth, I don't know whether this has ever, ever come up, but I think is that if I were a lawyer and my patient, my client got hurt when they left the emergency department and they, and they were clinically intoxicated in the emergency department, I would, I would, I would use that as a strong case. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, um, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I, I mean, I've had tons of patients where they're chronic alcoholics. They come in, they get their level drawn because they're uptunded, you know, and it was, 400, 500, whatever. And then, you know, a couple hours later, who knows what their level is, but it's going to be 200 or something and they're fine, you know, and they want to go. And after an hour or two of fighting with them and them destroying the department, I'm ready to let them go. I know that their level is whatever it is. It's not normal. And I let them go because they're driving me crazy. I think this is the level they live at you know, I probably, it's more dangerous for me to let them keep dropping. And like, I'm kind of, I made the decision in my head that they're being more disruptive to the department. There's some danger in keeping them there. And I don't think I'm helping anybody, them, anybody else in the department, the nurses, myself, by continuing to kind of try to manage them in the department. And ultimately I think they're just high risk patients wherever they are at home and the department and I definitely tend to let these patients go when their level is greater than 0.08. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. I don't think we have case law to really inform us. I, I think like once they step into the emergency department, they are just legally high-risk patients, whichever way you want to cut it. And you're you own that risk when you sign up for them and you own it when you discharge them. Do you when you say let them go? Mm -hmm. I I think you mentioned earlier that you you know, you live, you work at a place where they kind of would just walk into the desert. You let them go someplace with a family member or someplace safe, that kind of stuff. Right. That's what yeah, you're Yeah. I mean, I probably <laughs> like, I get them a ride to go where they want to go. Ideally there's somebody else there with them. Uh, I'm sure that I've let them go home by themselves too, but they don't go out onto the street where I've, where I work. Yeah, I think it's reasonable if you have a relative who's going to pick them up and they could, they they they're not going to fall over and hurt themselves when they leave. Yeah, that you definitely have a, an elevated blood alcohol, so you can always make the case that somebody's going to be comp compromised. Which which I would go back to ask the question about this patient who had the the marijuana in their blood level is is it reasonable to say that a physician can work with um, uh, and uh, marijuana in their in their bloodstream um, is that related to them potentially making judgment errors or anything like that? I mean, because we don't really it's not zero, which is what we'd like. it's it's positive. We don't have a quantification of it in terms of the blood level necessarily. Are you relating um, this to me letting the patient go? no, <laughs> i'm i'm wondering I'm wondering uh, what what is the um what is the risk here? Because doctors, if they had a, if a, if they had any alcohol in their in their system and um, they made a mistake, that would be viewed as a, you know maybe a, one of the reasons that occurred. If you have any marijuana in your blood bloodstream, um, 
or your urine, does that mean that you are in any way compromised um, as, a, as a worker? And, and and that would get around all of this stuff about the, it's illegal and it's at the hostels and wanna, don't want to deal with it. After you're hired, you can come to work and have lots of marijuana in, in your blood uh, stream or your urine. And so I wonder, um, what are I the... Mean- what are the risks here in terms of being a clinician and being, you know, it's kind of interesting if you had a, a mistake at the, if you made a mistake at the hospital, it was obvious. Um, and what part of the protocol was for you to get a urine or, or blood uh, test to see whether you were compromised in any way was like, wow, what do you think, Frank, about whether a, a physician now They've already been hired. Can they go to the hospital uh, with um, marijuana in their in their bloodstream? Well, it's if they have a positive urine, it, you know, it just means that they used it in the last seventy two hours. But if they had, um, there's this one active thing that they've looked at, and granted, there's lots of active things, but they looked at delta nine THC, and you know, if that's over two nanograms per mL, they usually suggest that they use recently. Um, and recently usually is in the first four hours. And they say that impairment doesn't typically last with smoking marijuana, you know, for longer than four to six hours. I mean, obviously things are variable and now people eat edibles and stuff like that, but they've done tests, you know, memory tests, you know, motorcycles, swerving, throwing bodies out there. A lot of these things are simulated. So they're not absolutely true to life, but I think if you draw blood tests and you do have Delta nine THC, I think some people would say that correlates with impairment in these simulated tests. Um, if you have a urine test, I would say it's useless. But I would say the hospital is going to say, well, it might be useless, but it might suggest that you were impaired at some time. We're not going to play that game. So sorry. You know, and I don't think they draw your blood. You know, I think they usually just do a urine test. You know, I, I don't know. I would ask for a blood test. Got you. Yeah. I, there are lots of analogous mm-hmm. cases you could come up with. I don't have any in front of me, but there are cases where, you know, physicians have operated when they're sleep deprived or oh. have had, you know, drinks the night before they're not actually drunk where these have, things have been brought up. So, you know, there, these have, these issues have been litigated before at least mm-hmm. to, to some extent, but yeah. back to the, the discharging drunk patients, you sent a case, Frank, that got some press when it first came out about the discharged drunk patient in New York, which mm-hmm. I, th- I thought was interesting. And there have been some kind of contrasting cases decided in other states. I don't know if you want to talk about that one. Um, I don't know why I, I brought this up. I, I kind of just kind of popped up, but you know, um, there's a, a it, the title was great. It said New York's highest court finds ER physician and hospital have no duty to prevent intoxicated patients from leaving the hospital. And the case was Kowalski versus St. Francis Hospital. And I think it was in 2013. And I think the person kind of was intoxicated and the person kind of left. And then something bad happened. I don't know exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> he got smoked by a car, I think. Yeah, I think yes, was, it was. It was I very bad. Died. Yeah. <laughs> Death, it was bad. Yeah. yeah, pretty bad. Yeah, very bad. Um, so, you know, the they argued that the patient was able to walk. He was able to carry on a conversation, you know, but they also write, he was unquestionably had a high alcohol level. 
but was in control of his faculties, it says, you know, obviously written in legal terms here. And he would, the, the others argued that it would be safer if he went to a detox facility rather than the street. But, you know, I mean, you can't force everybody to go to detox, you know, and his alcohol level is 3.369, by the way. 0.36. Yeah, that's pretty good, right? Or, you know, yeah. What do you think of that case? So it's interesting. So the New York Court State of Appeals, State Court of Appeals, so that's like their Supreme Court, said that the hospital emergency physician had no duty to keep him there, that they couldn't hold him against his will because that would be false imprisonment. And they, so everyone kind of, you know, initially when this came out, they said, aha, we don't have to hold drunk people anymore. If they want to go, we just have to let them go. Um, But I wanted to talk about it because I saw this kind of go around and that was kind of how it was interpreted by emergency physicians is like, we're just going to let drunk people go now. Um, But I wanted to like put a couple little caveats on that. First of all, it's one state, you know, so every state does its own thing. Second, there was New York has a kind of a couple of weird laws. It has this thing called the mental hygiene law. And that basically says that when a drunk person comes into a hospital under their own will, not when they're brought there, but when they come in on their own, if they want to leave on their own, you can't stop them. You shouldn't stop them. Versus if they're brought there by somebody else, because like somebody's worried about them or police bring them in or something, then, and they try to leave, then you actually like should stop them. And so this guy, he'd come in with a friend because he wanted to go to detox. And then it was taking so long that he left. And so when the court was interpreting this, they were looking at that mental hygiene law, which applies to people that come in on their own. So they were like protecting his rights under this law because he'd come in on his own. So they were applying that specific law, which is very specific to New York, saying we don't, you know, wrongfully imprison people who come on their own accord. So it was, you know, it would be a very different outcome, likely, if somebody else had brought him in um, because they, you know, were worried about him or the police had brought him in or something, then it probably would have been the opposite ruling saying, no, absolutely, you should have kept him there. And now you're in lots of trouble for letting him walk out. So very specific to New York, very very specific to this mental hygiene law. And also other states that have had essentially the same fact pattern before them have found the exact opposite. So, you know, before you look at this and interpret this as if, you know, I'm just going to let these drunk people go. um, No. (laughs) Yeah, it's confusing. I don't know how to keep these these core things straight. You know, I don't know if you saw that Amtrak case. There was this California jury like so, awarded like this huge Amtrak lawsuit. The guy got like 20, I shouldn't say he got, the award was like $28.6 million. And this guy goes into an ED, the ER doctor sees him, says he's okay, doesn't have to check an alcohol level. And the guy leaves. And I forgot if he just kind of left on his own or it was formally discharged, but the ER doctor just felt like he didn't have to keep him against his advice and et cetera. And then he goes out and lays on a train track and Amtrak, you know, Amtrak train runs over his legs and he's a double amputee. And when he wakes up, you know, obviously it's a long hospital course, you know, in court, he doesn't remember anything. You know, I don't remember going to the ER. I was drinking. I don't know if I drank in between the ER and the train station, you know, all of those things. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But 
the ear doctor was held liable, you know, I don't know, you know, 30% or, you know, $10 million in that case. Obviously, the big money is Amtrak. And there's videos of this case, if you ever want to Google it. It's dark. It's dark and the kid is dressed in all black, you know, and he's sleeping on the train track and he gets his legs cut off. You know, very, very tragic, you know, um, that that scares me, too. It's like, yeah. should, the, should the ear doctor have like forced this guy to stay? Sorry, I'm going to tackle you. I'm going to tie you down with the chance that he gets battery charges against him. You know, I don't know how often that happens. I mean, you'd probably have a better handle on how often battery charges happen against physicians. But that case really scared me. So I should have given you both cases, one, the New York law and then this one. You know, we talked about the Kowalski uh, decision a, a bunch of times uh, here. And um, I think that uh, doctors should just do the right thing because they're not going to know the nuances of the law as Rachel defined it. Certainly not. They're not going to know this uh, bifurcation there. I think you just need to do the right thing. And uh, what and if you break the law, it's kind of like, uh, well, who's going to fine you or who is going to fine you neg- uh, uh, um, that you should be criminal not not you know um put in jail because you 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 broke this this law it's like but arguably i mean nobody's gonna do that arguably he was doing the right thing like this guy wanted detox who knows how long a wait was maybe it's a month-long wait for detox you know for his well the the the, um, right thing was to let him go and, well, that's yeah, that's what I'm saying. And, and, and so, so it, in, in that case, it's a bad decision. And the fact, yeah. well, in, in that case, it's, it's it it shouldn't be generalized by any stretch of the imagination. I, and I just think that when this comes up, it's just kind of like do what's medically right. And uh, a group of your peers will not basically attack you because um, uh, of this. And, and frankly, what's the likelihood of you being um hauled into court except for the Kowalski decision and it's like don't worry about it just do the right thing and and forget it so you think it was okay that they let him go that you guys talked about this before yeah i mean i think that uh it's this these are all nuances about how person how compromised this person was i agree that that i i do remember it was somebody who was brought to the with his friend and he was waiting for detox yeah. And so um, you don't know how compromised he was necessarily, but I think that this is um, not extrapolatable to 99.9% of the people who you're going to uh, deal with, who are, you're going to make a decision. Are they safe to go home? And you're going to, you know, now that Rachel mentioned it, you know, if you want to bring up the uh, four issues of, of capacity, then, then go to it. But uh, I think it's largely a, a clinical judgment. I think in this case, you know, you're not going to protect yourself much by documenting capacity with this guy and his, uh, I mean, maybe you could try, you could try document capacity with this guy and a BAC of 0.369 or whatever it was. But I think what you can do is document that you're making the decision because you think it's in the best interest of this patient. And that's going to go a long way. Cause when we see people get in trouble, it's because they essentially have no documentation. It looks like they're just trying to get rid of a problem patient. You've got to, you know, put a little time in to say that, you know, to demonstrate, like if something happens to this guy, you, you made this decision because you thought it was in the best interest of this guy. You, you spent some time thinking about him, 
You know, it wasn't just like, oh, guy's drunk, he wants to leave, I let him go. It's, you know, he is intoxicated, but we have a safe plan for him. I spoke with him. Right. This is what he wants. You know, he knows that he's welcome to come back at any point if he changes his mind. I got him a bus ticket. I saw his friend. He was ambulating well. I gave him a sandwich, whatever it was. So it's it it was a person. The the future judge, the future jury recognizes that you saw this individual as a person. You cared about him. You cared for him. You know, God forbid if something happens, he was not just somebody you tried to get out of your ED as fast as possible. That's good. Those are good recommendations for documentation. You have a smart phrase for that, or are you just kind of no, I'm uh people have that have heard me talk know I'm kind of anti-smart phrase because oh, I think wow. you can sniff them out and you know the more that you can see that you know that you thought about that particular patient, you know, and there's something in your documentation or throughout your documentation, it's patient specific. I think that's like very apparent to people that are looking at it in the future. And I don't think it takes that much longer, you know. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Especially with transcription. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the idea of having these uh, phrases are obviously they're self-serving and these little paragraphs. And I I think that if, if it comes out in court that, that this is a paragraph that has been used in the past, it's identical to the, in the past. It's like, well, the doctor just pushed a button and blew out this, you know, really, um, Mm. uh covering their butt paragraph you know kind of thing but in fact you, you use that all the time and it wasn't wasn't specific for this patient necessarily um i think macros really uh do have a um some risk particularly when we felt compelled to do and uh, you know put the, you to have a macro for the standard neuro exam the exam neuro exam that you've never done in your entire life kind of thing <laughs> and when and, and people put that stuff down i think it's i think it's interesting too as of january 1st uh charting in emergency medicine is changing drastically there are no more mandates for four um reviews of systems and 15 of these and th th this many boxes of that. That, that that goes away totally with regards to getting paid it is all based on medical decision making now very specifically about medical decision making and history and physical is a one that is considered medically appropriate uh which is a a wonderful thing for emergency uh, physicians the these rules that came up in 1995 regarding documentation are gone. The only thing left is medical decision making. Um, and so that now dictation, I think, will become the primary way to um to document because you'll do a paragraph that is a fraction of what you used to do before, perhaps, and um and it will be customized to this individual patient based on what uh what is wrong with them. And I think that um these forced histories and physicals that had all of these elements that especially i love the box that said all of the systems uh checked in the, and negative i mean that was a lie on freaking every chart that needed 15 of these you know and the government allowed you to lie here's the box put you check that box okay um so I, I think i don't know how many physicians know about this change i think we should be in some way celebrating uh big time and uh we but we do need to learn more specifically now how medical decision-making goes, because that's how you're going to get paid now, strictly on medical decision-making. 
think that's great, right? Because yeah, absolutely. Anybody could check the boxes, like you said. But I tend to be an under orderer, you know, county hospital teaching. And so let's say I have somebody who I think is intoxicated. I might not get anything on him and just watch him and see how he progresses and document his exam, et cetera. But some of my colleagues will say, well, he's altered. So I'm going to check labs on him. I'm going to check a CT of the head. And if I get a CT of the head, I'm also going to check a neck because I can't rule out a neck injury. I was like, you know, there's not a bump on the guy. And then when you do medical decision-making, then that guy could say, I ruled out hepatic encephalopathy. His liver enzymes are normal. I ruled out anemia causing his coma. You know, he's not anemic or something silly, you know? And I, I just fear that this sort of medical decision-making is going to lead to more people ordering tests rather than saying, you know, logically, he doesn't have this, doesn't have that. You know, you almost get a high test order sometimes is going to get more money out of the system. I hope not. But no, actually, that's that's probably not true now. Um, I'm excited uh, that you say that. Tell me why. Uh, because uh, there are some there is some element of it related to, to tests, but not not as much as you you would think. And um, tests are counted as like individual. Like if you order a um, comprehensive metabolic uh, panel, which is like 15 tests or something like that, um, that's considered one test. Hmm. Um, it, because the test is de defined by its its um, CPT number. Anyway, the, a comprehensive metabolic panel has got one number. It is one test. Uh, and uh, But like a D-dimer is also a unique test. A, and a troponin is a unique test. And an EKG is a unique test. They all have specific uh, numbers. However, it's not the totality of those numbers in terms of adding them up. It's kind of like that's just one component of the um, the med medical decision making. And so there are very specific instructions. And I think, frankly, doctors are going to need to kind of get familiar with those. Yes, they've been relieved of this burden mm -hmm. of all of these checkbox oriented kind of things, but they do need to know. Uh, now, a little bit more specifically, what the coders are going to be looking for in your chart so that they can charge, a, you know, a level five, level four, level, you know, those kinds of things. Um, I think it's I think it's absolutely wonderful. They've been doing this in, in uh, primary care now for two years. It was wow. uh, an experiment of such. Of, uh, and I think it was also done in urgent care as well. But. Uh, I, I have a friend who is the, the uh, head of a CMS for the Southeast region of the country. And I've known him forever and ever. And about uh, three or four years ago, there was an ASAP meeting in San Diego. And I remember talking to him about what they were going to do or try to do in um, primary care related to getting rid of all these boxes. And I said, well, what do you think? You know, emergency medicine is kind of like primary care in, ter in terms of uh, the, these boxes. What do you think about emergency medicine? And I remember him saying to this day, he said, no way. No way was that going to happen in emergency medicine. And yet here, this wonderful relief is upon us. Um, and I think it's terrific. But on the other hand, you need to know um, – about medical decision making and what will be counted in terms of your um, ability to level four, level five, because uh, it's it's really fairly specific now. And medical decision making always was, had you know this issue about 
data and risk and and those kinds of things. But now they've defined it a little bit more uh, specifically. And in some cases, it is substantially different than it was in the past. So good things. And I I think it allows for, it will allow for better documentation, honestly, because I think that histories and physicals will be more clinically appropriate now. And and that will not take a lot. And I think it'll be, I, I think that those places that have free text dictation will do it. I wonder what the what effect, if anything, this will have on scribes. Uh, I think it potentially have will have a big effect on scribes, uh, actually. So um big things are happening and it's happening in six weeks. Wow. Do you think it's going to increase scribes or decrease scribes? I think it will decrease scribes, uh, honestly. Because, but yeah. you have to have free text di- dictation. And I think, honestly, you always needed free text dictation for medical decision-making, which was by far the most important part of the chart, something that doctors really needed to do. I mean, scribes can do hit the uh, review of systems and all that other stuff. But when it came to, um, unless they were you were standing there and they were basically taking your words, but... But ultimately, this is just um, billing for the physician fee schedule, but all of the other services like CTs and everything is separate. So to your question, all of the extra tests aren't affected by this, yeah? No, they're not affected by it, but okay. but their their role in terms of determining whether this is a level four or level five is uh, different because there are equally weighed parts that relate to um, you know, the risks of the treatment that you're going to be rendering, it's set, um, uh, that's one of the things, the amount of data is another thing. Um, and I, there, are, there are two or other things which I, I'm blocking now, but which have been become very specific about what you, what you need to do. So I think that um, free text dictation is going to um, result in Shorter histories and physicals, but maybe yeah. more robust um, medical decision making. Yeah, which is you know honestly the what we get paid for, to do. But, but all the over testers will still be rewarded. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I don't think so. Honestly, I mean, there's going to be there's a limit. You know, you, if you order fifteen or three or four, it's it's kind of like you know, well, you know, the data is once become once you've ordered two or three or four, that the data becomes you know, large. Um, so I don't think that if you order 10, it's going to be, you know, you've already exceeded the large. I'm very concerned, honestly, about training programs where residents leave who are just test machines. Right. And this issue about, you know, doing a, a an exam with a patient kind of thing or, or is de-emphasized and ordering is emphasized. And I think that, um, I'm very concerned because I think that that's the trend. Uh, so, uh, Frankie, I think you may be in the Jerry Hoffman minority, and because people think they're covering their butts when they do these things, and we're, we're teaching residents, and what you're teaching them is to be ordering machines. Oh yeah, before they, I mean, whatever. In general, a lot of people do it before they see the patient, right? They're in triage, they have abdominal pain. Let me order these labs, these pain meds, this, oh, it says nausea. Let me give them this without saying hello. All right. Should we summarize some of the legal points we talked oh. about before you guys get on your testing rant? No, <laughs> testing, testing grants over. I, um, I wondered whether, in fact, there were other things um, 
Frank, in your list that you uh, that we have have skipped over that uh, may have been important. So we covered opioids, we covered ma- marijuana. I think um, was there. A, I think there was a, a couple of other things on your list. I think we covered uh, alcohol. I mean, all of these topics could be like one hour. I think in of them, in of them um, by themselves. Excuse me. Um, we talked. I think we covered the buprenorphine stuff. We covered a little bit. With the alcohol stuff, I think we covered AMA enough, right? Against yeah, I think so. And capacity and stuff. I think like we beat that to, to death, actually. Okay. And then we covered the pros and cons of getting levels, I think, of alcohol. Right. Yeah. And I think you've been a, a, a terrific help in uh, uh, dealing with some of these issues, which, um, especially, you know, with regard to, to marijuana, which is really going to come up, I think, very frequently. And Rachel, the case that you brought up, Mm-hmm. is um kind of like uh, is scary is scary yeah. because i think uh the hospital did a substantial disservice to this physician by not telling him the rules that they're going to play by and it sounds i wrote, um, I wrote down some stuff you want me to write down some of the stuff we talked about you guys can disagree with it go ahead all right so don't assume it's okay to use marijuana if uh, when you're moving to a new state, even if it's legal in the state that you're in, that's kind of in reference to that first right. case we talked about. All right. Don't buy CBD from suspect sources because it's likely to have THC in it and you'll test positive. Very good point. Reputable sources only. Um, then we got some tips for how to beat a marijuana test. Thank you, Frank. Oh. <laughs> dilute, dilute, dilute. <laughs> so you're likely to be positive for two to three days longer if you've got a uh, high percentage of body fat, or if you have high frequency use, but you can dilute your urine. Yes. Yes. Um, but not too much. Wow. Drink some caffeine at the end and then give yourself a day to, uh, maybe, maybe some, uh, Gatorade or something with some electrolytes to beat the can test. I, this, uh, you know, I, did, I meant to ask at the time you, you invalidate your urine. If it is too dilute, is that true? Frank on yeah, these tests? Absolutely. Yeah. You invalidate it. Yeah, if it's if it's cold. it doesn't mean that you flunked. It means that you have to take it again or something, or does it did it mean that you flunked? Uh, I do uh I used to do medical review officer work and that would be a flunk. That would mean you, you know, there's if you go so so low, it means that you added water to it. You know. Mm. But if it's if it's still physiological, it usually means you repeat it. And usually they tell you to hang out and wait. So yeah. In overdose cases where you're needing naloxone, uh, you can strategy would be to try to wake the patient up slowly with lower doses to avoid um, getting the patients agitated where they're wanting to leave prematurely. If you get in that situation, consider using suboxone or buprenorphine to try to mitigate this. And those could be useful in a lot of situations. We're probably underutilizing those. Blood alcohol levels are not necessary, but if you do use them, considering getting follow-up levels to document sobriety um, or document sobriety clinically and just recognize that there is inherent risk in doing that. So, you know, be clear in your chart about discharging those patients. Can we, um, can we clarify that, uh, that point about uh, repeats? Um yeah, throw your two cents in. Um, uh, did we? Did we actually? I, I don't. I don't want to basically give people the idea that maybe you're recommending repeats, but I'm certainly not recommending re- repeats. Um, 
because I think that uh, we don't have to show that they are at zero or or some arbitrary number. I think that that would be a mistake. All right, and Frank, what do you what do you do? We uh, no, you usually don't repeat. Um, okay, but you know, I, I, we didn't really talk about it, but the the range of metabolism is is wide. You know, you the average person, give or take, is eighteen to twenty milligrams per deciliter. So if your level it takes you five, yeah, per hour. Sorry, if your level is hundred, it takes you five hours to get to zero. But, you know, a lot of people put thirty-five, and that's like that's the rock star, that's the Olympian of drinking. You know, that gets up that high. Okay. Yeah. And for pretty much all these scenarios, when a patient's leaving that's been intoxicated, document capacity as we talk about over and over here, uh-huh. and. The last thing I have written down is come back and do opioids with us. Oh, not awesome. not that do them with us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Talk about opioids with us. Wow, that's awesome! It's such an honor. I want to. I'm looking for my cassettes when I go home to see if you can. Yeah. One of that. <laughs> I would like to see a cassette. She doesn't know what a cassette. Oh, what is a cassette? Yeah. No less one of our cassettes. Rachel, you grew up in the CD era. You know what a CD is. You know. I know what a cassette is because, you know, they had these things where you could like, for a dollar, you could get like 15 CDs and they would like mail them to you and you, and then they would like rip you off if you forgot to send it back or something. My, my brother convinced me as a mean joke to do cassettes, like that they were cool. So I would get like the cassette of the month and I had nothing to play it on. And he laughed at me every month. So (laughs) used to be eight tracks too. You you guys were on eight tracks though. No, no, no idea what that is. God. Anyway, thanks so much, Frank. Uh, I really, enjoy, uh-huh. I, I really enjoyed it. I think that uh, w- we would like the opportunity to invite you back every uh, month. I'm in. Heck yeah! <laughs> this was terrific. Great. Thanks so much, right. and Rachel. As always, thanks for you know your ability to sum- summarize. It really it floors me how you can look up. We're having a conversation, and simultaneously, uh-huh. you are doing research on the internet. And, you, and that's the next thing you know, it, it doesn't. You don't even skip a beat. You're reading. You're reading off the internet about about Kowalski. You know, yeah. it's, it's like these. Uh-huh. This generation is like their Those ability damn to pull up. Yeah, damn it, you know. But that's why we associate with you folks because you can pull this date up, and it's like. <laughs> It would take me like, uh, you know, days to get this answer, no less read it simultaneously. But anyway, thanks so much. Um, Thank you. Let's do this again. All right. Thank you. Have a good holiday, folks. Okay. You you too. 